Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. This is Michael Kaplan, your host, and we're coming to you from our studios on the beautiful campus of The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, This particular episode of The Ephemeral Machine is significant as we launch the first of the Silver Halide Sessions, interviews with collectors, aficionados, historians, and archivists. I sit down with well-respected photographer and collector Anthony Rue and discuss the development of his film camera collection, how it is maintained, and the correlation he draws between photography and photographica. When we return, Anthony Rue, the collector as auteur. Welcome back. You're listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. I'm excited to launch the first in a series of interviews with film camera collectors, aficionados, and historians. We're calling it the Silver Halide Sessions, and we begin our journey with a very special guest. Anthony Rue is a noted photographer and collector, as well as the owner of Volta Coffee, Tea, and Chocolate in Gainesville, Florida, a fine establishment near the University of Florida campus. Anthony is well recognized as a much valued contributor to the camera collector groups on Facebook and co-host of the recently launched and very popular and rather innovative, I might add, Camerosity podcast, along with Mike Ekman and Theo Panagopoulos. Anthony's finely tuned perspective on film camera collecting combined with the deep well of knowledge of Photographica precedes him as he appears as our guest today. Welcome Anthony to the ephemeral machine and thanks for being the guest of our very first Silver Halide sessions. Thank you. I'm actually quite honored to be here. It's uh, the podcast is developing great. I've been listening to every episode and I'm excited to see how it develops. Well, I I appreciate that. Um, It's been fun kind of uh, putting this thing together and uh, uh, I'm sort of hoping that it has the potential energy to move forward. Um, And uh, so this is, this is just terrific. I'm really happy that you're here. And um, I thought we would sort of track back and, um, you know, provide our listeners with a sort of a backstory that connects you to photography. And, you know, so the basic question is, how did it all begin? You know, for me, I'm, I'm part of that generation. I mean, I'm an old guy and I'm part of that generation where one of the few things that I really had in common with my dad was my dad was a, was a photo enthusiast. He was a camera nut going back to the 1950s and sixties before I was born. And, uh, you know, I, I've told the story before that the, uh, my dad bought a Kodak retina reflex three to take my first baby pictures. And when I was like 14 years old, he put it in my hands as my first camera. Uh, so the, the first camera to take a picture of me was the first camera that I had to take pictures with. Uh, and then going back to when, like my family, we were from Bloomington, Indiana, and we'd take a, like a road trip every year. And from, ah, I must've been eight or nine. Uh, and my dad would go into New York city and my dad would like shove a, an Olympus, uh, 35 RC in my hands and load it up with film just to see what a nine-year-old would take pictures of in New York city. And, uh, so I actually actually have those photos somewhere. And so from a time I was a kid, I just had always had a camera in my hand. And, uh, you know, when I went to college, uh, my focus, uh, I was at Indiana university was in uh, telecommunications video production, but I was really doing more work in the dark room than I was in the uh, television studio. And, uh, at that point, uh, by the time I was finishing up my undergraduate, I'd, I'd switched to film studies. Uh, and I, I feel like I've kind of ghosted you my entire life and that we've got very similar backgrounds from there. Uh, I actually went to Atlanta. Uh, my first camera that I bought it, while I was at IU was a Nikon FM two with the, uh, uh, the series E 50. And for, you know, for 15 years, that was the only camera that I had. I mean, I thought that you have a great reliable journalistic tool like the Nikon FM two, and you've got a great prime lens. That's, you know, a decent lens that you're not afraid to take places because there's nothing precious about it. Um, I didn't need other cameras and I actually had, you know, pretty successful life 
getting jobs doing photography with just that camera and that lens. And so I didn't feel the need to acquire you know, quite a few other cameras. And then the sort of the two seminal moments that sort of like flipped the, the switch for me made me want to look into buying other cameras and, and either collect or use other cameras uh, were actually two museum shows. Uh, the first was a show when I was in Atlanta at the High Museum. I was actually working at the High, helping to program uh, films for the Atlanta Film Festival. And they had an amazing exhibition that was put on by, uh, it was a traveling exhibition put on by the Brooklyn Museum of Art on the machine age in America from 1918 to 1941. And it was the first attempt to truly bring together all the decorative arts and industrial arts and fine arts to show the influence of, of you know, the machine aesthetic in American culture. And it was kind of ironic that the centerpiece for it, and it was actually the, the poster for the exhibition was the Walter Dorwin Teague's design for the Kodak gift camera 1A, which is the sort of art deco looking geographic uh design in brown and silver and red and i absolutely fell in love with it and you know as part of that exhibit they had the uh raymond lowry designed cameras and they had like all of teague's cameras and it was the first time that i looked at a camera as something more than just a tool to take a picture with that i could actually see that there was this influence and this crossover between uh design and the tool itself and you know what it could produce you know when you speak about um how your interest in photography evolved uh besides the fact that you and i have similar um academic backgrounds um i love the fact that uh besides looking at the photographic process as a a way of obviously communicating and telling a story uh you began to sort of look inward and talk about the um the apparatus as a functional part of that process and you know we we speak about these brands of cameras and that we all love and sort of depend on and of course nikon's right at the top and and canon and minolta but when we um look at the aesthetic of the camera itself we realize that uh there's potential influence there that we're not even really aware of. Absolutely. And, and then the other, the other art Inst- or the other exhibit that really like, again, flipped the switch, uh, the uh, art Institute of Chicago working with uh, the, with Kodak and with uh, RIT uh, put together a show called the art of fixing a shadow 150 years of photography. And you walked in the room of the art Institute. And the first thing you saw was a camera obscura, and they had done the most comprehensive and probably the first to this day, probably the most comprehensive uh, museum show that walked you through from the, you know, the very first, you know, salted paper prints right through to digital prints. And, you know, it was both about the power of the artwork and for the first time, more about the cameras that were used than I'd ever seen in an exhibit. Uh, Cause usually, you know, if you go to an art museum and you see a, Uh, photo on the wall, they never identify the camera. And for me, this is where the camera becomes ephemeral. You know, it's like, you know, the the camera was essential, like as a collector or as a photographer, we we obsess on, you know, lenses and on, on bodies. But if you go to a museum, it's not even an afterthought, you know, it'd be, it would be no longer, no more would they identify the camera than you would go to see, you know, Monet on the wall. And they talk about, you know, what gauge paintbrush you used. Um, you know, the, the, the camera is very much erased once you've got the print on the wall. Uh, and the, uh, the, the exhibit on Art of Fixing a Shadow was the first time when I really thought about, like, the difference between shooting a TLR and shooting a 4x5 and shooting, you know, the, the, when the Leica comes in and the, and the whole, like, the, 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 you know, organized by, like, Brisson's uh, use of the Leica and the formation of, of Magnum and... Uh, the, the, the introduction of the, the Nikon F and the, and the influence of, of the SLR on war photography. Um, and that was really the first time when I started to think about how uh, the actual tools changed the way that you produced work and made me want to uh, like try different cameras, not so much for collectability or uh, you know, not to really fetishize the camera, but to just see how different tools changed your ability to take photographs and what you photographed. And in a way, in film studies, we talk about like uh, 
you know, the, the rise of the, the studio camera and these massive, you know, like during the, the Hollywood period with uh, these massive uh, Technicolor cameras that required cranes to move through the studio versus the introduction of the Aeroflex and the Bolex and how that created cinema verite. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, we have to, you know, th- I, that resonated with me when I started to think about cameras themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting thread that you're propo- proposing here, because when you consider the, the, the idea of the film camera and we sort of equate it to the idea of the, of the, the, the film photography camera or the still camera, we see this correlation between those large cameras that were used in studio uh, cinema um, versus the small portable cameras that created direct cinema and cinema verte, as you suggest, and the um, transformation of still cameras from these large box cameras and uh, like Ouija used down to a portable camera, which could then find itself in places that larger cameras couldn't find themselves before. So um, that that particular idea is is really compelling and it kind of leads us down a very interesting path. So I'm, I'm going to kind of bring you back a little bit because I, I want to sort of investigate where the collection sort of began as it aligned with your interest in photography. Sure. Um, well, the, you know, the other sort of inflection point was in the, uh, in the late eighties, I was at Indiana university doing a, a, a master's degree in comparative literature, but I was really looking at, uh, it was in film theory and, uh, uh, I took a, this crazy sort of turn within that program where I ended up actually in, in 1988 writing my, thesis uh about the rise of digital photography and what digital photography would do to the notion of truth and photography and there's a great book by a british historian named john tag called the burden of representation uh that talked about how uh in uh british court and british law um cameras never used to be accepted as evidence in court trials that, that, that juries and judges actually trusted artist representations or artist depictions more than they trusted images because images were very gimmicky. They had ghost images and spirit photography. And, you know, the process of shooting in Victorian England was so labor intensive that it it led itself too much for manipulation and that the court felt they couldn't trust that. And that there was a moment when that flipped, when suddenly a a photograph became more uh, trustworthy than the memory of an artist. And so that kind of was the focus of what I was looking at was how we were flipping back the other direction. And we were looking, I was looking at like early cases of National Geographic using early versions of Photoshop to manipulate covers and how that had undermined the notion of veracity in the photograph. Uh, And at the same time, I became obsessed with uh, alternative printmaking processes. I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back and look at these early photographic processes that I've been reading about. So I started doing things like Van Dyke printing and uh, photo uh, engraving, photolithography, and uh, like taking, I was actually working on like making large scale uh, pinhole cameras where I was making my own rice paper and then coating that with chemicals and making my own rice paper negatives and then making these contact prints where the, you had to destroy the negative to make the contact print. So they were truly like singular objects. And that led me to looking at old junker cameras that I could use for these processes. And so I started picking up every toy camera, every Diana, every Holga, you know, every plastic lens camera, if it's a Fisher price camera, I was just interested in the way that that the sort of the degraded image could work with these other alternative processes. And so by the early nineties, I was grabbing every, uh, you know, agate 18 or every, you know, Soviet half frame camera or anything I could do that was, uh, uh, sort of, again, the ephemera or the, the sort of the flotsam and jetsam of the camera world, you know, these, these cast off cameras that nobody wanted that at the time I could afford because as a, you know, graduate student studying semiotics and cinema, uh, I wasn't going to buy a Leica, you know, I wasn't going to buy a Roloflex and even the people I knew who were in the MFA program, you know, at best they would have a Nikon or a Canon or a Yashica TLR, uh, you know, nobody I knew worked, had 
the sorts of cameras that we now very much sort of fetishize as collectors. So interesting when you think about the direction or the path that your your collection sort of took, and it was generated obviously by a desire to um, to provide some sort of aesthetic connection to photography, and that the apparatus was that connection, um, and and it obviously grew from there. Um, and I'm wondering if your perception of the photographic process. Uh, ultimately affected where the collection went to from that point? Well, I, I mean, I think it did. I mean, you know, it, it, was, it was interesting where uh, the Magnum photographers found their, uh, you know, found their, their, their tool in the, in the Leica or the contacts, you know, they're shooting contacts threes or twos and they're shooting, you know, Leica threes. Um, for me, I became obsessed with small form factor 35 millimeters because uh, I was doing a lot of traveling. I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe trying to document the fall of the, the European or the uh, old Soviet bloc countries. So I was in places like, you know, you know, Czechoslovakia when they're still in Czechoslovakia and East, East Berlin and East Germany when they were still in East Germany. And uh, I would want something that was, you know, just like, the, just like, just like Corte Brasson would want to use his Leica to be on the street and be on the, you know, be in the battle zone of the, the, the Spanish war. Um, I was shooting with, a, a, I had, oh God, I, I ran through so many Olympus XAs and as much as I love those little cameras when they were new, they broke so often. Uh, and I switched over to shooting the uh, Minox 35, uh, 35 GTE. And, you know, anytime I would see a camera that was of that small form factor, you know, whether it was the Lomo LCA or, you know, anything that was pocketable and yet still produced a quality image that sort of became the focus of both my own photography and my collecting at the time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I know you related a story um, that connects uh, the use of those cameras in your experience uh, photographing uh, the Eastern Bloc, where you ended up with an, an, an Agate 18 as yes, your yes. primary camera. Yeah. When I, by the time I got to, uh, <laughs> by the time I got to uh, uh, Budapest, uh, I had broken all my cameras and was just shooting the, the agate 18. And I actually, I was able to do a couple of gallery shows based on the photos that I shot with that camera, which I love that camera, <laughs> but it's a, <laughs> it is a toy. I mean, it's a, it's a child's camera, but uh, there's something uh, transformative about that, that lens and certainly shooting uh, in, in, in old, like pre democratic uh, Budapest. Uh, that sort of captured that feel I was looking for. I can see how um, at that particular point in, um, you know, your experience, um, how the, those particular cameras could really generate a, a specific kind of aesthetic. Uh, um, when you now consider the direction that the collection went to from that point on, what were the sort of the, the steps that that pushed it in um, a direction where the collection began to have more traditional cameras and things of that nature. Well, I, my, I, I kind of disappeared from the academic world. I kind of burned out in the, uh, I'm ABD in my PhD in film theory from university of Florida. And uh, I was looking for something to sort of rehabilitate my soul and started cave diving and ended up helping to form a company that manufactured underwater lighting and underwater instruments for deep exploration diving. And so I spent the next 10 years uh, doing almost nothing but underwater uh, photography, videography, uh, and then studio work. And so I, I still have my Nikon and I, we, you know, by that point I'd started to transition to digital because if you're doing uh, a deep cave exploration dive, uh, you might be underwater for, you know, three to seven hours. And if you take a Nikonos down and you've got 36 shots uh, versus like I, at the time I used a, uh, a Nikon D1, or D100 that was housed in a specially designed housing that was good down to 500 feet. Mm. And I could take you know, 300 raw files on that, on that camera. Wow. Oh yeah. And so the, and, and, and on top of that, just the speed of being able to uh, 
uh, you know, take a camera raw file and because shooting underwater is, it has its own set of difficulties and like things like color balance and, and like working with channels. And, and really that's where, how I learned how to use Photoshop was trying to understand how to make presentable images from underwater photography. And so my camera collecting kind of came to a dead stop. You know, I just had the tools that I needed to do a job that I was getting paid for. Uh, and luckily the job was paying for those tools. Well, you don't want to know the price of some of those wide angle lenses that we had to use on those, those Nikons to, to work under these dome ports and these housings. Um, and then the, the real, uh, the, the difficult moment was that, that, that as I was wrapping up that career and, and beginning to work on opening up my, my shop, Volta Coffee, uh, I was the victim of a really nasty home invasion robbery uh, in which I lost every camera that I'd ever purchased except for my dad's retina reflex that happened to be in another place that they didn't find. And my uh, Minox 35, which I had at work at the time, and my Nikon FM2, which I'd loaned to a friend. And so overnight, I went to uh, three cameras and you know, I probably lost 50 cameras and all of my work because they stole every computer and every hard drive. And so backups of backups of backups were stolen. So I lost uh, a good 15, 20 years worth of work. Um, and that kind of took, took it out of me. You know, I didn't want to touch a camera for four or five years after that. Uh, and the, 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 the trigger that got me back into collecting, uh, I was in Berlin attending a conference on uh, cacao because I work in the cacao and, and coffee trade now and walking around uh, old uh, area that had been East Berlin, stumbled across a shop uh, called Click and Sur that, res that restored old uh, film, 35 millimeter and eight millimeter uh, cameras that they would gather from you know, yard sales or from you know, wherever they could across the old Eastern block and restore them and sell them. And uh, my wife, Janet, made a recommendation. Uh, hey, you know, why don't you replace one of those cameras of yours that you know, got stolen? These look a lot like what you had. And I ended up getting a, a Voigtlander uh, Vito and a, oh. a, a, a one of the, 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 the Minox spy cameras, the, the, the small cameras that I'd always wanted. And I never will forget the guy at the checkout counter was like, your wife wants you to buy two cameras? <laughs> very, very nice. <laughs> very nice woman. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. That was, that was the, the fuse that was lit because I got home and I thought, well, if, you know, if I can afford these cameras that I could never afford back when I was younger, mm -hmm. I wonder what other cameras I could afford. And I found a, uh, an eBay. This was uh, five years ago when cameras still hadn't exploded in price. And I found a seller that was nearby that was selling a, uh, just an undifferentiated box of 10 Voigtlander cameras. And it was like 25 bucks. And that was like the, you know, the sky split open. Uh, mm -hmm. cause suddenly it's like all these cameras that I had always wanted to shoot. I realized that I could afford, uh, so I sort of said a, uh, you know, I have long ago shed many of my vices. So I'm not going out to concerts like I was, I'm not drinking and I'm not smoking and I'm not, you know, I've got, what am I going to spend my money on? Well, I'm going to take, you know, I sort of said like, I will take a hundred dollars a month to buy a camera <laughs> and that'll be my sort of my mad spending money. Cause you know, it's just, I'm working too hard. I'm not going to movies like I used to. I mean, God, I used to see. 500 movies a year and now i'm seeing five a year so right. um yeah i would just go on ebay and i would start looking back to and and at first the, the the sort of the game theory behind this was find the cameras that were used by the photographers that you loved to see how the cameras that you've never shot but always wondered about would impact the way that you shoot mm -hmm. and so i just i started in and um uh, you know, one camera at a time, one camera a month. Uh, and then after five years, you realize you got a lot of cameras. So how many are in the collection now? Do you have a, sense? I don't have a count. I'm sorry. It's several, it's, it's probably four or 500. Okay. Uh, a substantial collection. And, um, the, the story as, as tragic as it is of the, the home invasion. Um, it's so interesting that, um, you know, it, it was sort of this cutoff point in your life where things sort of settled. And then uh, it took um, sort of another instance 
an appreciation of the apparatus to sort of drive you forward again. Um, the, um, the, the, the Voigtlander veto that you mentioned, that's so interesting because, you know, I know you have an affinity for Voigtlander, uh, and, and I know I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but uh, my German is not great. Um, I know that's you okay. have. I, I, I still say Walter Benjamin. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of people do, and why not? It's spelled that way, right? Um, you're, you have an affinity uh, for um, uh, Voigtlander cameras, and, and I can see why. I mean, it sort of was the, 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 the seed that helped all of this sort of grow. Um, how is that um, collection part of the larger collection? What is its, how is it sort of represented? What is its function? You know, it, it, it's kind of the core. It's, it's interesting because I, as somebody shooting in the 90s and early 2000s, I only knew of the Cosina notion of Whitelander. I didn't know that it had this incredible history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I got that, that the, the, like the early, the, the, the Vito 2 or the, uh, uh, the Vito B, those cameras, they're, they're decidedly middle-class cameras, mm -hmm. you know, they're just incredibly well-built. They're, they're not the Porsche. They're not the, you know, they're not the Lamborghini of the camera world. Uh, but there's just something so satisfying about using those cameras uh, that I was just like, well, if I enjoy shooting these so much, I'm, I'm going to go sort of both directions, backwards and forwards in Voigtlander history. And that's when I really started the deep dive into the history of the company, what they had done. And my mind was just kind of blown by the cameras that they were producing in the 1930s and 20s. They're so incredibly uh, innovative at the time. And their designs have always been you know, clever, but not overly clever, mm -hmm. you know, because there are cameras that are just unnecessarily fussy and ones that are prone to breaking. And the Voigtlanders just seem to be designed to work. And then, of course, I, going back through my art history, uh, realizing that, that like Brassais shot with a with a Bergheil and seeing the photos of him with a Bergheil on a tripod, getting those incredible night scenes of, of London. Um, that just was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to get a Bergheil and see if I can make it work. You know, see, look, through the, <laughs> look through the lens that the Brassais worked, you know, worked with. And, and by the way, you can get stunning photos out of a camera from the 1920s like that it's shockingly of all the older cameras that i have that little Bergheil, which is about the size of a paperback book when it's folded up uh is just it's i think one of my true of the cameras that i have that i probably shouldn't use because they're almost you know 90 years old mm -hmm. uh that's the one that i use and will probably use until it breaks because i just get too much joy out of shooting with that camera uh, and and just the, the from portraits to landscapes to street scenes with that camera, it is truly one of those cameras that uh, it gives you that look. It gives you that experience of creating the type of scene that the Brassai did at the time. Uh, I mean, a lot of cameras by the you know by the nineteen sixties and seventies. I hate to say it, but a fifty millimeter is a fifty millimeter is a fifty millimeter. Mm -hmm. um, it, and you know, yeah, you know, I used to have these long conversations with 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 Carl from the Classic Lens podcast when we would shoot about how how much he had disdain for shooting with SLRs because he felt that no matter what lenses he put on it, it was still that like pristine product that you get from shooting with an SLR. Um, the Bergheil, and, and then all of those older Voigtlanders. Now, you know, we I, I, a little bit later we'll talk a bit about my my Grail cameras, and I'll just say right now that I have been looking for the early 1930s versions of the Prominent and the Perkeo and the uh, Rangefinder Bessa. Uh, and one day I'll like sell enough blood plasma to be able to afford them. Uh, they're just out of reach for me. And, I, and I'm kicking myself because these are cameras that I probably could have afforded five years ago, but now you can't touch for under you know, five to seven to a thousand dollars for those cameras. It's true. And, um, you know, a lot of that is, I, I imagine, sort of our fault because we've sort of <laughs> perpetuated the idea that, uh, you know, the the apparatus that is connected with film photography is so interesting. And, you know, that has certainly evolved. I have a, a similar feeling about that company. Uh, in fact, you and I have a, um, a connection through a Voigtlander Vito BL, which um, it, it's... Oh, the BR. I'm sorry, the, the range finder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Oh. 
And it's so funny because uh, it was it sort of came up in conversation uh, a few weeks ago uh, when you were talking about it, and um, we were on Camerasi together, and you mentioned that I had sold it to you, and I had forgotten <laughs> that I had sold it to you, and I was like, w "Did I sell that to him?" I I, I was sort <laughs> of, um, but then it all sort of came into focus. Um, and um, I realized uh, what camera it was. And, you know, those, that, that brand and um, that line, it's so interesting because when you think about a company like Voigtlander, they focus their attention on a specific um, brand that, that was connected to the photographer um, sort of ergonomically. And they, over numerous number of years, they barely strayed from that, the construction of that camera. I mean, they added features to it and they changed the name slightly and they added ones and twos and things like that. But the form factor remained consistent and obviously the quality. So, you know, you, when you have that as part of your collection and you see the different models on your shelf, you're, you're able to connect the camera to the development of the technology and, and the, the well the other thing the other thing about voigtlander that 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 also fascinated me is going the other direction is that it's also the story of 20th century capitalism and that you had voigtlander you know competing up until the point of like the super besomatic and the ultramatic and then stalling on the market not mm -hmm. able to compete with the japanese companies that were coming up and getting you know be, being uh, absorbed into zeiss and so now you've got the merging of Zeiss and, and Voigtlander, and then you've got Voigtlander being absorbed into Roli. Uh, and, you know, so you, and then you've got it being absorbed into Cosina. So you've got this camera that, you know, from this very proud company that had been manufacturing opera glasses in the 1700s, you know, suddenly you've got this, this, this notion of a brand that moves through an independent company to being part of the largest German company consortium of, of lenses and cameras and then down into this other niche market of, of rely and then finally ending up in a you know a japanese portfolio where it may or may not be anything more than you know some optical formulas and a name uh, yeah, but, it, that, but that's like that that's the story of the 20th century mm -hmm. in manufacturing and it and 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 that the, the company really paints that portrait per perfectly i mean it it's so distinct because you can track that so well by simply looking at its lineage and you know it, it is sad um but it does provide us with some real insight into um you know um, modern economics and, and how that all sort of swirls around products and marketing and, and things of that nature um the other parts of your collection um i'm curious about um what direction they go in and, and what exactly um, sort of uh, pushes you to choose specific cameras or lines? Is it uh, sort of country-based or genre-based? Um, where does that all sort of generate from? For me, it kind of begins and ends with, well, with design and usability. Because at the end of the day, I'm not collecting cameras to put them on the shelf. You know, I don't have enough people come over to my house to worry about displaying cameras. My cameras are mostly organized in storage bins with you know, silica gel and wrapped up nicely in microfiber cloths so that they, uh, you know, I, it's Florida. You know, I've got to, if I just have them out on the shelf, I'm going to be worrying about fungus and mold and, and dust. Uh, so I want to keep them in shooting condition. So they're not out for public view, you know, they're, and I just sort of make decisions about what I want to shoot. And come in and like go through my boxes until I find what I want to shoot. But as far as the cameras that I want to shoot, first, you know, as I realized that I could afford to buy these cameras, you know, through eBay, through the fact that you've got so many. And Florida's kind of an interesting place because you've got a lot of people that come down here to retire. They bring their goods down here and then they decide to downsize or they pass away. So the used market, if you're willing to look through garage sales and you can find some spectacular things. Uh, that's the way that I ended up with my only Leica, which is an M3, uh, which was just a Facebook sale from somebody who had no idea what they were selling. Mm -hmm. and I, I picked up 
It was kind of funny. I, I they, they had a, an M3 that looked brand new with all the original receipts with the three, the Sumerit, the Elmar, and the Hectar lens that it was sold from Munich. Uh, it actually had the sales receipt and the original leather case that it came with. And they had it on Facebook Marketplace for, for $500. And I get in my car and I'm, it's a Crystal River. It's like 45 minutes away. And I'm racing down through a thunderstorm to get there. And as, I, as I'm pulling into the neighborhood where the guy lived to sell it, he is like, uh, hey, uh, my neighbor says that uh, you're, you're, you're ripping me off and that I, I need to get more than $500 for this. So uh, I'm going to need $700. So, uh, I found an ATM in Crystal River and, and paid my seven hundred dollars for my M3, which literally looked like it was unboxed last week. Uh, but that'll probably be my only Leica because, among other things, I'm just not interested in brands that create collectibles. Right. You know, when mm-hmm. you have a, a, a company like Leica that now will have all these like special editions, you know, it's the market for the Leica has become a collector's market, and mm-hmm. that has almost no interest to me at all you know in a way that has killed the brand to me because even though i love shooting my m3 i really don't care about the brand because i don't want to buy into that notion of the collectability of a leica so i look at things like you know going back to that original uh show that i saw in atlanta on the machine age i'm desperately just one by one tracking down all the walter dorwin teague designed cameras uh, and looking at the, the Lowry designed cameras and the ones that came out, like we talked about this with the Ansco Mark, uh, which is a stunningly cool camera. Uh, you know, so, so part of me is I'm interested in design. Now there are dead ends to that. I would have told you, uh, about two years ago that one of my grail cameras was the, 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 the Contorex, mm-hmm. uh, the bullseye, which I think is still just a stunningly beautiful camera. I mean, it's, as a piece of industrial design, I think it's sort of, you know, like the pinnacle of, of German engineering. And then Mike Ekman loaned me one for about six months. And I don't care if I ever shoot that camera again. Uh, it was just, it did, I did not get along with it. So, so with design being an important part of, of my desire to collect cameras, you know, I kind of focused on things like Olympus, which I think has an incredible design history. You know, I even, you know, they're cheap cameras, they're, they're nice systems. You know, they really had a sense of design. And so I've, I have a lot of Olympus, you know, and I'm very, I love shooting it too. I love the OM system. Uh, you know, the, even though the XAs kind of failed me when I needed mm-hmm. them in the field, uh, I'm slowly bringing those back into the collection. I've got a nice, I just picked up a beautiful, like in the box XA that is just, I, I forgot how much I enjoy shooting that camera. And then Minox, uh, you know, who, who doesn't like a, a Minox spy camera? Uh, and of course that led me down the rabbit hole of getting the, the, the art deco spiral developing tank, uh, that Walter Zapp designed and, and, you know, finding all the accoutrements for, for Minox. And then, uh, you know, I'd love, love, love one of the grail cameras would be the, 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 the Riga Minox, the first one, which it's the stainless steel case. And I mean, it's literally like picking up a Swiss watch, you know, you can just feel the precision in it, uh, ungodly expensive for what they are. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this on Camerosity. If you're developing your own, like if you're loading your own cassettes and developing your own, it's it's almost inconsequential in price to shoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and 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 my my Minox obsession led me to 16 millimeter cameras, like first with the Kia F30 and then the the Minolta 16. And you know, as much as these cameras get knocked, uh, I want to remind people that like if they saw the Velvet Underground documentary on Apple Plus this last month or at the theaters, all of that was shot on 16 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, you, know, you look at the history of American independent cinema, you know, whether it's, it's Harlan County, USA, or, uh, you know, give me shelter. It was shot on, on 16 millimeter. And if it's good enough to project on a screen at a theater, you darn well better be able to get a print out of it. Uh, you know, so there's nothing wrong. I mean, there's, I, and, and the same with uh, the Minox, you know, you're basically shooting eight millimeter film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are willing to spend a hundred dollars to process three minutes of, of eight millimeter film. Uh, well, then you shouldn't complain about the look of it when you, mm-hmm. uh, when you shoot it as a still camera, because it's the same damn film stock. 
when it comes to, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you have a substantial collection. I know that the number is not something that you can necessarily put your finger on. And I, and I, I was going to actually ask you about the, the Florida environment because I know it's not necessarily good for mechanical uh, apparatus. Um, so you keep a lot of the, your cameras boxed and things like that. Do you display any cameras at all in your collection? Mm, only the cameras that are in like active rotation for shooting. You know, so I may have at any given time either, you know, five or six cameras loaded with film or mm -hmm. six or seven cameras that I'm getting ready to load or that I want to shoot next. And so sort of in my library, you know, that like there's there's like the section of of, of Jacques Lacan with all of the Pentax over by it. And there's the section with, uh, uh, you know, the Baudrillard and Virilio, and it's got all of the uh, uh, the Zeiss cameras over there, <laughs> you know, so I have them sort of tucked in with my books as I'm getting ready to shoot them. So they're kind of covered and out of harm's way, but I don't really have any cameras. I mean, I, the only ones that kind of have a place of honor are my two medalists, because I think that just as machine art, I think that they're unparalleled mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm also shooting them uh, at least every couple of weeks. And so they're always getting dusted off and used. Is that uh, a one out of two? Yeah. Yeah. I used to have, I used to have more variations. I used to have like a one with a, I've still got the one with the silver lens. I had the one with the black lens. And at some point I'm like, yeah, there are other cameras I want to buy and I can make some money on these medalists. And so I'm down to two uh, and just having a great version of a one and, and they're both fully serviced and, and accurate. And I just, I love shooting with that camera uh, and the results I get are just spectacular. Uh, actually, actually, really enjoy shooting six by nine. I had this this discussion with Mike Ekman because, like, one of the cameras I don't have, I've slowly the well, one of the other brands that I focus on is 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 Zeiss, and now I've got like a 1933 six four five, the five thirty A, and then I've got uh, you know a couple of the Super Icontas that are the six by six, and I really want to get the six by nine. And Mike's like, "Well, come on, how often do you actually shoot six by nine? And the truth is, about once a week. Uh, you know, I just, it's a, it's a, it's a format that I just, it, you know, I get like 75% of a four by five with none of that, none of the hassle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a great format. The only, um, well, I, uh, I have a BESA two, um, which is a great range finder, yeah. um, six by nine. And uh, my other six by nine is the Moskva five, which, um, is a really wonderful camera. I don't know if you have one, um, but if you're interested in sticking with that format, it's a worthy investment. If you can find one that works Well, for all purposes, it's a super Iconta. 531. Right, exactly. Yeah. Except with a with a Soviet flare. I right. don't know how else right. to put it. <laughs> and then, and then um, my, my, my secret weapon that I shoot probably the most often of my of my six by nines is there's a I, I have this friend who's a like a, a mega collector who refuses to be interviewed and refuses to be um, identified. Uh, he was a person that was a famous art dealer in the 70s who was in the process of trying to open up a, a museum of, of, of camera history in, in France. At one point, he had even acquired the uh, uh, the entire collection of the the French uh, Academy of Photography, including all of Daguerre's original equipment. The uh, French Ministry of Culture declared it a, a national treasure and seized it from him, which sort of took away his desire to open up a museum in France of camera history. Um, but he advises me and, and steers me towards cameras that I would otherwise overlook. And one of the cameras that I picked up is a, a 1950s French camera by a company called De Marie and Lapierre, and it's called the Telka 3. And he's like, you know, look, Anthony, this camera has more rigidity than a Bessa, and it's got better optics than the Tessars that are in the Super Icontas. And it's, you know, it's just, this is the camera that you want to get. And I found a seller in South America. Uh, actually, I thought I was buying it from Portugal, but it was a guy that was using a, a Portuguese email on eBay and he was actually down in Sao Paulo. Uh, so I got the camera from Sao Paulo and then ended up having to send it off to, 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 to Jurgen to, to, to CLA. Uh, that camera is so cool and it's such a precision instrument and I get such fantastic results from it. And, uh, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a camera that very few people have seen there. They rarely crop up when they do now they're very pricey. You know, they're, they're in the $700 range, which for an, an unknown 1950s folder is pretty darn high. 
but if you ever see one, jump at the chance to use it because they're they're fantastic cameras. After the uh, after the robbery, and I had to replace all my cameras. I ended up uh, with a, a Pentax K1 as my only digital camera, and to this day, it's my only digital camera. And at the time, the reason I got it was because I could put any came out lens I wanted on it, mm. and uh, that sort of led me backwards into because uh, the, they they also I thought had uh, a very interesting approach to design and very much were not a uh, there was no mystique behind Pentax, but uh, their early cameras that, you know, from the, the 40s and 50s were very, very stylish and uh, a pleasure to use. And then, uh, you know, starting with like the MX, uh, well, well, starting with the Spotmatics, like I just, I you know, we, on Camerosity, Paul was just talking about, or maybe it was Ira talking about the unreliability of the ES uh which to me is iconic because it was used to shoot the, the cover of, of Lyndon calling. And I wanted the camera that shot that iconic shot of Paul Simon and smashing his base on Lyndon calling. So I picked up an, an ES from, from Paul actually. Uh, and I shoot that camera regularly. It's, it's just like those cameras and you know, the, the, the later spot Maddox are fantastic uh, and, and historically important, you know, I mean, you don't see a picture of the Beatles, around hard day's night without a, without a spotmatic in their hands. Right. And you actually see George holding his Pentax. Um, and it's funny because I saw that photograph of him sitting on the plane holding his Pentax with the top mounted meter. And that prompted me to go out and find the exact camera, which I was able to do. Um, for not a lot of money. So uh, I'm proud to say that I have George's camera uh, in my collection, or at least a a representation of it at this point. Um, well, that's okay. I went out and, and, and tracked down the best copy of, of an Xacta VX just because of rear window. There you go. And you know, it's interesting because um, I, I do want to cover that. Um, um, and then we're going to start um, sort of wrapping things up. But um, it is my understanding that you also have an interest in Xacta cameras. I do. They, they, they are also, you know, they're cameras that um, all I did is, is like the first time I opened a book and I saw a top down picture of that like trapezoidal design of the mm -hmm. body. And I thought that, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's like a, it's a, it's a mechanical work of art. And I just, the aesthetics that they use, and, and I probably have seven exactas mm -hmm. and a number of, of, of EXAs or X's or however they want to, you know, the, the cheaper cameras, mm -hmm. which are like, which are like Trabant's, you know, it's like the, the first, the first ones, you know, with the, uh, the, sh the shutter that is actually the mirror, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like a Trabant. It was the people's camera and you can mm -hmm. get, fantastic shots with it as long as you don't need to shoot above one one hundredth of a second right and i love the sort of the, the stick shift that controls oh, absolutely the yeah it's it's things like that 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 make um certain cameras so appealing and uh, i happen to love exactus too and I, I think looking at my shelf i have uh just about the same amount and um there is something about the design, and I know a lot of people have issues with shooting with them because they're awkward and they're for left-handed people and things like that. Um, when I shoot with an Exacta, I simply just battle all of that. It, it doesn't even come into play. Uh, as long as it takes for me to set up a shot, I will work with that camera um, in order to just have the opportunity to use it. I think and it's amazing and having all the exacto lenses led me to the uh the topcon super Duke, ah yes which is which yeah. is also one of these like weird mm -hmm. sort of vestigial lines where you know it was so influential at the time but now it's almost unknown mm -hmm. uh, also has great machine aesthetics um is a tank to use but is also fun to use yeah. and those lenses are fantastic i just um took delivery of a uh topcon bessler um c uh, the other day, and which was the actual the Topcon R2, um, and you know it's they're just wonderful. There's just they something are. about them. They're I don't I don't care that they're heavy. In fact, the heavier the better. My Topcon DM with the motor drive I think weighs uh, something like <laughs> two thousand kilograms, something like that, and it's just fantastic. Uh, any other um, lines that seem to to uh, permeate? throughout the collection or or um just just size you know yeah that's really been my focus lately 
Um, you know, I still have my original Nikon FM2. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some kid at UF who was selling that his uncle gave him a, a very minty black FM2. And I thought I should have it in black. I mean, it's like the stupidest purchase. Do I need another Nikon FM2? No, but I've got them in both Chrome and black. Well, and that's um, the thing, you know, I, I, you know, one of the things about um, this particular podcast um, I mean, the ephemeral machine in general is that, you know, I was fascinated by collectors who pinpoint things like, uh, you know, variants and serial numbers and, you know, model progression and things like that. Um, and, y- you know, y- you may say, well, this is a ridiculous purchase because this has a, the numbers are slightly raised or they're engraved on this knob and they're not on this model. But, you know, you find yourself completely sort of enthralled by those by those notions um for for, for me i mean it seemed irrational because the shooting they're identical i mean it's just like they're clones there's there's no reason that i need to shoot one versus the other uh but part of me was the also irrational was the fm2 was the first camera i purchased with my own money and mine Mm -hmm. is now i mean i know the history of it because i'm the one person owner it's gonna die one of these days i want another one in case mine dies (laughs) So it was like, there's a backup. I'm going to get it so that I will always have a Nikon FM2 that works in my collection because that's essential to my identity as a photographer. Um, But of course, that led to me getting a Nikon F uh, and then getting another Nikon F. Um, So I've got I've got two FM2s and two Nikon Fs, and that's the extent of my Nikon collection. If I see a half frame camera, I'm going to buy it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's something I've not used before, half frame or or square frame camera. Uh, I really don't care who makes it. I do have can I've got the Canon dial. I've got a Canon Demi. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, uh, those are really fun cameras. Yeah. But if I have, if there is a half frame or a square frame camera, uh, this 35 millimeter, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to buy it. And I love my, like my burning robot. I've got two burning robots. If I, one day I'll get a, a Royal that's sort of on my grail list. Uh, but I've got the, 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 the twos with different lenses. One's got a, a Schneider, and the other's got a Zeiss uh, sonar, and the, those cameras—they're—they're you know—they're almost as small as like a, an XA, um, and they're just—and it's a square format, and it's just like everything I love. It's tiny, you know. There's <laughs> everything, everything, everything. It's like everything that I love in collecting is 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 in that little camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're 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 actually really fascinating. Um, the design, the the operation of them, the mechanics is always something that sort of I find um, very attractive. Um, and you know, the notion of the clock wind, which a lot of people um, kind of fear because it's it's a very very sort of specific um, uh, design for um, advancing the film, and you know. Um, depending upon the the company, they can be stable or unstable. Um, the Leningrad, for one, which is most people consider unstable, um, but uh, it's it's just simply fun. It is, you know, and it's interesting and it's different, and it and it and it sort of creates an avenue for a desire to have it in your collection because it represents a an aberration in um, in in design that ultimately became very successful and drew a lot of attention to itself. So, um, you know, it, we it, talk about things like that and it, and it just it sort of works. It, it also, the robot has one of the, the most unexplainable design quirks of any camera I've ever seen. And that I guess it's maybe for spy work and that there is like, I'm holding up a Pentax ES. Well, you can't see it. Uh, and there is a switch that's on the front top plate of the camera that when you flip the switch, there's a second viewfinder port on the side of the camera so that you hold the camera perpendicular to your eye to shoot it. Uh, so it doesn't look like you're, like you're, you're just, maybe it looks like you're just futzing around with your camera, but for some reason have this little tiny porthole all the way up to your eye. Uh, so it allows you to shoot 90 degrees uh, through the viewfinder. Um, candid, candid photography, I guess. I, but it's just so not candid because it's obvious <laughs> that you're holding. I mean, if you just hold it out away from you and and press the trigger, that'd be one thing. But you're literally holding it to your eye, like you know, uh, couched up, where you could be doing nothing but looking through it. Um, and I, I never understood that, but it's the only camera I've ever seen that has that. Well, there are, you know, there are design quirks that sort of show up. Um, uh, I. I 
I believe camera, you guys and Camerosity were talking about the uh, a periscope rangefinder, yep. um, and you know that kind of thing. You you kind of scratch your head and you say, well, what was the purpose of that? But um, you know the designers saw fit to kind of put this together in some in some way, shape, or form. Um, so it it becomes a a distinct point in potentially someone's collection that they can sort of draw themselves back to and say look this is something unique um it's really 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 fascinating um you know my my approach to collection is um the brands are, are similar uh, my display is radically different because i display all my cameras and the reason that i do that is not for anybody else oddly enough it's for my own yeah. Um, sort of a desire. Um, I literally walk into this room and just stand there and look at all of them and sort of soak them in. And then I'll pick up a camera and sort of play with it and experiencing it in that way. Um, is there a, a moment when you just feel like you need to dig into your to those boxes that are um, and sort of just pull something out just to sort of have it in your hands? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say it was triggered by various social media groups, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot. Oh my God, that's such a cool camera. And I'll go rooting around and finding it. And yeah. Um, that, that's interesting because I think that ultimately, you know, as collectors, um, you know, we embrace our collections. We, um, you know, we feel strongly about obviously maintaining them and making sure that they're, they're either functioning and if they're not functioning, that's, I guess, the final real question is, you know, do you have cameras in your in your collection that simply don't work and remain in your collection anyway? No. If you I can't not. shoot, if I if I can't shoot it, you know, I'll find somebody that has the need to use it for parts, and I'll swap it out or sell it. Uh, I, you know, I just I don't because I don't have them displayed so mm -hmm. much. Uh, for me, the ability to create photography with the camera is, is just intrinsic that if I, if I have a camera that I can't shoot, I don't really have a use for it. Understood. I mean, that is a specific take. I mean, I, 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 I present completely in the opposite direction <laughs> and that's only because, um, you know, I, my experience, oh, in my life has always been collecting things. I mean, previous to cameras, I collected watches. So everything was displayed. And, um, you know, if a watch didn't work, I could still appreciate its aesthetic and its look and things like that. And I sort of approach cameras the same way. Um, but I also see the obvious intrinsic value in having a camera that you can shoot with. Yeah. If, if, I, if every camera I owned worked, I would be in bliss it doesn't always happen and then i sort of struggle a little bit with what to do with it but ultimately it ends up remaining in the collection and just going on the shelf next to the other ones i must have uh besides uh, a petri penta which does function i must have three other uh penta versions that sit with it that do not work at all but i love the look of them and there they shall remain so it's, it's an interesting um, perspective and one that I, I value hearing from collectors and, and obviously, you know, I respect um, people's um, choices about creating um, a connection between the camera and the photographic process. There's, there's no question about it. I mean, that's what we're here to do, right? Right. We're here to, we're here to take pictures. Right. So if we can do it with these amazing, um, uh, functional um, machines, then, you know, we, we couldn't be better off. Yeah. So, well, um, Anthony, this has been um, a real treat. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate you um, being a guest on the show, uh, sort of the inaugural kickoff uh, for the um, Silver Hairline sessions and um you know is there anything that you want to sort of um kind of close off with before we um end our discussion uh, not that i can think of other than uh you know it's, it's when i was thinking about this earlier as we were talking uh if it hadn't have been for photography i probably would have ditched facebook a long time ago uh the actual the community that we've been able to create and the different uh photo 
forums uh, is what keeps me on that aspect of, of that particular social media because I get very little out of Facebook otherwise. Uh, and that, that, that has as much as, as anything else in collecting, the, the community has become a big part of why I collect. You know, the, the fact that I've met the, like amazing people, like the people that we do Camerosity with and with you and with other people that I've connected with through this community. And, and of course, going back to the, the fact that, you know, Carl and I were basically neighbors before he passed and and that him and I work, you know, like we would just through this, the, the crazy world of podcasts and Facebook groups uh, have formed you know, really great friendships. And uh, that I never really considered that to be part of collecting. Because, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, Lord knows, I have every book that I've ever purchased through my academic career. I mean, you never know when you're going to get into, a, you know, a, a discussion about Dune, and you need that copy of, of Peter Wolin or Christian Metz to back you up. Uh, so you're <laughs> scaring me. <laughs> you're really scaring me. Um, so I literally have never sold a book. Right. You know, it's funny because. I will sell a camera. I don't sell books. And so I've got every book I ever had going back through a very crazy and eclectic academic career. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 the online communities, the online forums uh, have been, uh, I mean, they, they get, uh, you know, they all have their problems, but uh, for the most part, they, there are, they are the best part of Facebook for me is, 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 is connecting through the camera community. And it's uh, it's a very, it's, it's a, it's, it's a part of collecting that I never considered. Um, yeah, I, I wholly agree. Um, it, it's, it's really an, an interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, it's, it's so much an embracing community. And what, what's really sort of ironic is that the notion of collecting can be a very sort of intimate and separate experience. And yet, once you sort of open up to um, others who share the same interest, your collection evolves beyond the walls of your room. Absolutely. It's, 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 um, it's really something. It really is. I've noticed that, you know, you get the, a, a certain satisfaction over somebody else's um, acquisition. Um, not that you're sort of living vicariously through them, but that you can just appreciate what they have in front of them. Yeah. And, um, and, and it sort of, you find, you find yourself settling into this very sort of um, pleasant place of, of um, awareness. It's the only thing that I can think of. Um, well, Anthony, it's been, as I said, a pleasure. Um, this has been really interesting talking to you about um, you, your experience um, with photography. Uh, we do share a similar sort of academic tracking and background, which I've always found so interesting. And I know that um, certain things that I post, um, believe it or not, sometimes I post them uh, just for you, because I know you're out there. Uh, you're out there kind of looking and observing. Um, so uh, um, I appreciate that um, uh, to, a, to a great degree. And um, again, I thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Well, thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, I guess um, that does it for this uh, uh, Silver Halide uh, session. And um, we'll be back with more from the ephemeral machine. And welcome back. You're listening to the ephemeral machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. I want to thank Anthony Rue for joining me today for a very interesting and insightful discussion about collecting cameras. I appreciate the fact that he agreed to appear on the show, and I hope you enjoy listening to his observations and perceptions when it comes to photography and photographica. Uh, I realized um, that I might be in for a few raised eyebrows uh, when um, people see the subtitle for today's episode in which I essentially categorized Anthony Rue as um, collector auteur. And um, I think uh, this observation, at least on my part, is appropriate um, because when Anthony and I first um, discussed his approach to camera collecting, um, immediately that idea formed. Um, that is an approach to um, gathering the, the uh, parts of the collection that are significant
based on sort of an overall idea or signature which connects him to the apparatus in much the same way that we might say an auteur has a, a significant uh, connection in terms of a, a signature approach to um, filmmaking. Um, and, and I hope that um, this is obviously perceived as a compliment because I think that um, when Anthony um, looks at the cameras that he wants to um, include in his collection, um, he looks beyond the scope of uh, essentially the camera itself, but uh, um, tries to uh, align it with some aspect of his life which is relevant and connected to an experience, an element of design, um, a uh, significant um, artifact, or just the fact that um, it represents something that is special to him and deserves a place uh, amongst the other cameras in his collection. So um, the notion of Artur in this particular instance is, I think, appropriate because um, it presents an individual who um, is carefully selecting cameras for a collection that are um, based on a, um, an overall feeling or an overall perception. And um, I was impressed by the choices that Anthony made um, and has made. Um, he has some remarkable um, uh, cameras in his collection, uh, and they all seem to have some significance as they um, give him uh, a lot of um, joy and um, um, allow him to e examine the photographic aesthetic in so many different ways. Uh, so that brings us to the end of uh, this particular episode of The Ephemeral Machine. Um, I thank you for listening. If you want to contact me, uh, you can certainly write to me via email. That's at theephemeralmachine at gmail.com. You can post on the Facebook um, page. That is uh, The Ephemeral Machine Podcast. Um, check out the Instagram page, The Ephemeral Machine. I am constantly posting images of cameras, um, parts of the collection, things related to camera collecting and ephemera. And um, if there's anything that you want to um, add or you have uh, something that you want to bring to my attention, I'd love to take a look at uh, whatever cameras that you have in your collection. Um, and I also am always interested in hearing from collectors who would like to talk about their collections with me. Um, their passions, their observations, their interests, um, how they align themselves with uh, photography as a component of collecting the apparatus that allows you to make those photographs. Um, and I think that does it for this particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Ephemeral Machine. Thank you.